If you've got your copy of God's Word, turn with me first of all to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and if you've got it on a phone, you can use it on there too. If you're a guest with us, thanks for honoring us with your presence this morning. We're glad you're here. We hope to get to know you better. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and we're in the middle of a four-part Christmas series. And so we've entitled the series Christmas Presents, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, The Presence of God. And we've subtitled it, God With Us from Genesis to Revelation. And the goal of these four sermons, we're on sermon three this morning, the goal of these four sermons is really to chart out the whole biblical story. Because the idea of God with us, although it's uniquely celebrated during the Christmas season, is really an idea that God has had from the very beginning of creation. And it's going to end in a new creation one day when Christ returns for a second time, as we've been singing about. But this morning, having already considered God's presence in Eden, that was our first sermon, and God's presence in the tabernacle and temple system in the Old Testament, which was last week, we're now going to come to sort of the apex, and that is Jesus and the church. It's the center, center kind of transition point in the biblical story where God with us takes on a whole new concept because it ceases to be an idea where God is just among his people and God actually becomes one of his people and then forms a body and a people in whom he dwells called the church. It's a huge thing we're trying to talk about this morning. It's, a, it's an awesome thing. And Isaiah 6 is where I want us to go first, simply because here we have a paradigm, probably one of the most helpful in all the Bible, for understanding what happens when God's presence comes to dwell with, a, with people. And this is a familiar text, I hope, to many of you, so I'm not going to take time to read it. But I merely want to lay it out as the paradigm for our sermon this morning. I'm not going to be preaching Isaiah 6. I'm just providing Isaiah 6 as sort of an introductory point so you can understand where I'm going. Here's what happens. When God shows up to Isaiah here in this vision in Isaiah 6, three things happen. Isaiah gets a knowledge of God. That's in the first three verses. He sees God as high and lifted up, as other than him, as holy, as great, as majestic, as awesome. And that has an effect on him. We see that effect in in verse 5 when he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So when he sees God and he experiences the presence of God, something happens to him personally. He he, he, He has a profound sense of humility and brokenness and contrition that comes over him. And at the same time, he recognizes his filthy, dirty, broken sinfulness. And that's going to become a pattern for any time we experience the presence of God. That's what's going to happen to us. But that not not only does it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just a knowledge of God and a humbling of ourselves. It also propels us to mission, propels us with a desire to take this God and, and, and to take him to others. And so if I could summarize Christianity in three brief words based upon the pattern we see here in Isaiah 6, it's this. Life is all about knowing, growing, and showing God. That's what it's about. A Christian experience of life, a life that has God in it, 
where God interrupts a life, three things happen. We know God, we are changed by that reality, and then we are propelled to take this God out in mission. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus and the church. God comes in Christ, the person of his son, born of a virgin, in Bethlehem, and, and, and out of that life, out of Christ's life, we come to understand who God is because he is God with us. He shows us what God is like and not merely tells us what he's like. And everywhere Jesus is interacting with people, people are being changed and transformed. And those people who are trained and transformed, Jesus sends out to declare his glory to others. That's what it's about, brothers and sisters. That's what we are about. That's why we're here this morning as we were reminded of that reality. So I want, to, I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about the location of God's presence in Jesus and the church. I want to talk about the effect of God's presence on us and then the display of God's presence through us. That's what I want to do. The location of God's presence, the effect of God's presence, and the display of God's presence. So here we go. The location of God's presence, point number one. In Acts 17... Verse 24, we read this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And if you were here last week, that verse should jump out to you. It's like, what? The God who made the heaven and the earth was living in a temple made by man. Keyword was. Keyword was. Something has dramatically changed in the way God's presence is manifested. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus tells a group there who are talking about the temple. He says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And he's talking about himself. He is the temple. And perhaps no better text do we have in the entirety of the New Testament Then John chapter 1 to explain this reality. Would you go there with me? The first chapter of the gospel of John. And at the beginning of this gospel, John writes the following about Jesus. In the beginning, that's back at creation, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this Word is a person. John uses the personal pronoun he in verse 2. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is God's presence now. Literally, John 1, 14 says, the word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. That there's a new tent that God dwells in. There's a new temple in which he resides, and it's the person of his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you think this is just a mere human being we're talking about, John doesn't start his gospel with the birth of Christ. Because Christ, in one sense, while he was a, became a man, The eternal son of God never had a beginning. In the beginning, he always was. He was with God, it says in verse 1, and he was God. 
co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, the person of the Son of God, took on human flesh. And in taking on human flesh, he did not lose anything of what he was. That is, the eternal Son of God. But he became something that he wasn't, namely a man. He took upon himself human flesh and two natures coincided together. God the, God, the, the eternal Son of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. So Jesus is the new temple. To know God, John says in John 1, we must know Jesus. That's what he says in verse 9. Look, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God is at, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus Christ has come to make God known to us that we might become God's children. Again, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the location of God's presence is in the person of Jesus Christ. We see this again in John chapter 2. Notice verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus is in the midst of cleansing the temple. And here's this, this wonderful exchange, this shocking exchange between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. He comes up on the scene and he encounters the temple in complete disarray. It's become a marketplace. Rather than a house of prayer, rather than a place of worship, it's become a house of trade. It's become a marketplace in which goods are transacted. And Jesus looking at this scene and seeing what the temple of God has become is literally thrown into distress and anger. And in verse 18, we read the following. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? That is, overturning the temple and making a whip and driving people out. We see that in the previous verses. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what they said, what the, that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there we have it. The temple of God is the body of Jesus. We see this underscored again in John chapter 4, where Jesus comes upon a woman from the town of Samaria, a familiar story to us, the woman at the well. And Jesus begins to put his finger on her sin because he's God's presence, and that's what God's presence does. When God's presence shows up in people's lives, they begin to feel defiled and broken, and by nature, we want to hide from our sin. And that's what this woman does because she switches the nature of the conversation from being about her sin and her need to repent to being about where, where worship should take place. Notice what Jesus says to her in verse 21 of John chapter 4. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain that they're standing on, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Unbelievable account. Jesus has literally just redefined worship for Israel. He said no longer is worship in a place. Worship is a person. It's not about a physical location, a physical temple, and where we're supposed to go to worship God. It's about coming to Jesus Christ and seeing him and knowing him as the temple of God. And if this couldn't be any more clear, turn with me back a few books of the Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. Right at the end of Matthew, we see what happens to this temple structure when Jesus dies on the cross as sort of a definitive word about this. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 40. I mean, this whole idea of destroy the temple that Jesus said, and I'll raise it again in three days, this has gotten around. Because when Jesus is dying on the cross, we hear this being shouted. Verse 40, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, says one of the thieves. If you were the son of God, come down from the cross. But he doesn't. He dies. He gives up his spirit. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So he dies. What happens immediately upon the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom is a symbol of what's happening. The presence of God is being opened and made available through the death of Jesus Christ. It's it's an unbelievable picture. And if we need, as if we need any further explanation of this, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, you don't have to turn there, talks about Jesus as being both the priest, he's the high priest, in the temple, and he's also the sacrifice for our sins. And then we get this beautiful picture in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, about what this rending of the death of Jesus has brought about for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places to go into the temple, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. No longer an old temple tabernacle system, a new and living way. Open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, his death on the cross. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies wash with pure water. So, the book of, book of Hebrews is probably the, the, the most important letter in the whole Old Testament for helping us understand how the death of Jesus corresponds to the Old Testament temple and tabernacle system and how the death of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. 
And so Jesus is not only the temple, brothers and sisters, in which we experience the, 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 the presence of God, he's also the sacrifice and he's the high priest. He's all of it. He fulfills everything about that, the types and shadows of the Old, Old Testament is fulfilled in him. So Sam Storms can write the following then. Listen to this quote. He says, God no longer lives in a tent or tabernacle built by human hands, nor will he ever. God's glorious manifest presence is not to be found in an ornate temple of marble, gold, and precious stones, but rather in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh, the one in whom God has finally and fully pitched his tent. To meet God, to talk with God, (coughs) to worship God, you no longer come to a building or a tent or a structure made with human hands. You come to Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God, end quote. So that's a huge shift from the story we've seen so far, that Jesus himself becomes the location of God's presence. But lest we think the New Testament ends there, it doesn't. The New Testament has a further expression of God's presence, and that is that not only is God's presence located in the person of Jesus, but amazingly, God's presence is also located in the people of Jesus. Now, we don't hold God's, or, or, you know, express and display God's presence the same way. We're not deity. We're not the eternal son of God. But nevertheless, we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit that indwelt Jesus. And therefore, the Holy Spirit has placed his presence within our lives. And so, as a result of that, we too, as the church, are the place of God's special presence. Perhaps this is no better expressed than in Ephesians chapter 2. I won't take you back there. We spent several months marching through the letter to the Ephesians. But you remember in chapter 2, it picks up on this whole idea of the church as being the temple of God. Now, how can the church be the place of God's presence? Well, I already explained because the church is indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, as in, as, but also because the, the people are of Jesus, the church, are in union with the person of Jesus. See, by faith, through our faith in Christ, our trust in him and his work for us on the cross and his death, his burial, his resurrection, in terms of placing our whole hope of salvation in him, we are united to him in a mysterious spiritual way in which God's presence is therefore released in our lives because we are literally the spiritual body of Christ. And for those of you who have a tendency, like me at one time in my life, to to make light of the church, to think that the church is just some ragtag bunch of people who meet weekly and do worship things and have potlucks. I mean, if you thought that's what the church is, I mean, that's a weak and anemic vision of what the church is. I mean, perhaps... I mean, we can't even read the New Testament and think, I can be a follower of Jesus and not be part of the people of Jesus. I mean, if you're here and you're not a member of a church, if you don't gather with a church, if, you're, if, you, don't, if you don't regularly make it a habit of life to live your life within the warp and woof of the rhythms of the church of Jesus Christ, you're woefully out of step with the New Testament. 
And I, and I have to ask you, have you encountered the person of Jesus? Because if you, once you encounter the person of Jesus and the spirit comes into your life, I mean, I can remember this as a 15 year old kid. I didn't understand this, but when God saved me, I had this inexplicable longing to hang out with older women who were in the church. Like, and get around them and talk to people about Jesus. It made no sense. I mean, I'm a 15-year-old punk kid. And all of a sudden, I'm wanting to hang out with these Jesus people. Why is that? Because they're my family. They're my spiritual family. They're the people that I am most in union with and will be for eternity. And that's what God does in a believer's life. We have this unexplainable longing. We can explain it from the New Testament, of course, but in our, in our young, uh, newly Christian minds, we don't have an explanation for why all of a sudden Jesus saved us and we want to start going to church. But the New Testament explains that, that when Jesus saves a person, he puts the person in his church, and therefore they will have this desire and longing to be a part of God's people, which is why church membership is just the natural fallout of being a Christian. And so I ask you this morning a couple of questions before we move on here. Do you know Jesus Christ? I know the vast majority of you here do. You, you are, you're part of this church. You're, you've walked with the Lord Jesus a long time, but there's always sprinkled among us visitors and guests. And I just ask you honestly, do you know Jesus? Do you know him as the location of God's presence? Have you encountered him? Has he encountered you? We'll talk about what effect that would have. So maybe measuring, knowing the effect will help you measure whether you've had, if you've known him or not. But do you know him? Do you know him as the place of God's presence? Do you say with every Christian down through the history, Jesus is Lord. Truly, this is the son of God. Do you profess that with your mouth? And do you believe in your heart, according to Romans 10, that God raised him from the dead? If you do, and if you are, you're a part of his people. And then I ask you, but maybe, maybe you're a, a kind of a lone ranger Christian. You're kind of you know, floating out there by yourself, trying to do the Christian life thing on your own. That's not a healthy place for you to be as a, as a disciple of Jesus. You need to be a part of the church. And not just a name on a roll somewhere, but a meaningful part connected relationally to people who know you and whom you know and can speak into your life, and whom you can speak into theirs, and be an encouragement, and build you up, and you can build them up, and so, so important. I don't have time to go into a whole ecclesiology here, a whole doctrine of the church, but just to suffice to say, the people of Jesus who, in, who encounter him as the Savior and as, a, as the location of God's presence will also be a part of the church of Jesus. So, that's the location of God's presence in Jesus and his church. Second point, the effect of God's presence. So when we encounter the presence of Jesus, or I should say when we encounter God's presence in Jesus, and we encounter the God's presence in the church, what effect should that have on us? Well, we're, we could talk a lot about uh, the different effects that that, that should have, but I'm just going to highlight two of them this morning for the sake of time. And what I did is, when I was in my study this week and began thinking through this, I explored this temple idea expressed through the New Testament. And there's a couple places in which the word temple is used. 
and a couple of them are in, are in 1 Corinthians, and I want us to go there. And let's look, first of all, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I've got a lot of Bible today, so I hope you're ready to turn and look and look with me here. Um, and, I want, and I ask this question, what effect, what effect should God's presence in Jesus and in the church have upon us? And I, and I want to highlight two of them. The first, and we see this in Isaiah, okay? We saw that, remember Isaiah 6 that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon? We see the exact thing happening, or that's supposed to happen, in the church, in the people, as they encounter God's presence in Jesus. That is humility and purity. Because that's what happens when Isaiah sees God in his temple. He's humbled and he desires holiness and purity. And that is a repeated theme in the New Testament. So first of all, I want us to look at this idea of humility. The first thing that we should, the, the way the presence of God should affect us is make us humble, humble people. Now, what's the definition of humility? We'll see that in a second. But let's read the, let's read the pertinent text. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, reminding them of their identity, of who they are. He says, do you not know that you, church of Corinth, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Why does he remind them of that? Let's keep reading. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or the life or death or present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Now, Paul does this a couple of times in the New Testament. He brings to the church this idea that they are God's temple and that that he reminds them of their identity, but he does that for a very specific reason when he's trying to address a sin in their lives. And this sin that he's trying to address in the life of the church in Corinth is pride. See, what's happened in Corinth, if you read the first couple chapters, is that they've become all too horizontal in their church life. They've become, they're like, they become divisive. They're not united anymore. They're beginning to have a party spirit among them. Like, you know who I really like? I like Apollos, man. That guy's a good preacher. He comes, I like him a lot. He's my favorite pastor. I like it when he speaks. And then there's, ah, I like Cephas. When Peter's among us, are you kidding? He's like a, an apostle. It's, it's really huge. Like, he's, he's among us. I, I'm, I'm more with Peter. And then there's some people in the, in the, in the, in the church who are just like, ah, those Christians, I don't even like them. I, I'm, I'm of Christ. See, I'm, I'm on Jesus' team. And they're all, there's all this factions and division because they're too focused on people. And they're too focused on the horizontal, the horizontal, oh, I like that person more than this person. I think this person's better than this person. This is the person that I'm more aligned with. I mean, this is my team in the church. Like, we're going to get a committee together and talk about how we can have more of us. You know, because we're, you know, we're the spiritual people and we're, we got it right here. And then there's another group over here saying, I like this. And so this, this whole church is divided. And notice how Paul addresses them at the beginning of the chapter in chapter three, verse one. He says, but I, brothers, he still calls them brothers. 
He still believes they're Christians. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you, though, as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely humans? That's, an, that's my favorite verses in the whole book. It's so, I mean, Paul's kind of half-hearted joking here. What he's saying is, look, you are supposed to be a supernatural temple of the living God. You're behaving like you're just a human being. See, that's what humans do. They, they pick favorites. But that's not the way it works in the church of Jesus Christ because we're supposed to be a humble people. We're supposed to be you before me. Everybody, you before me, you before me. Because that's the way Jesus is. Jesus, I mean, what if Jesus was not us before him? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be saved. We wouldn't be part of his people. We wouldn't be going to heaven. But it was because he said, you before me. My place, I'll take your punishment. I'll bear your burden. I'll pay your debt. You don't deserve it. I'll do it. See, Paul says, look, you're acting like a bunch of kids. You're behaving like babies. You're acting like you're merely human. He goes on in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God should be your focus. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see the focus? He's like, here's how you produce a unified church. When the church is focused on God, not on the church. The church if you keep your eyes focused on the church, there is nothing in the church to discourage you, disappoint you. Really, as a church member or as a pastor, you have to keep your eyes focused on God and what he's doing and what he says the church is. See, when we start getting proud and we start wanting our way and we start assessing things by our wisdom, we know we've lost perspective. We've lost perspective. Because you have now shifted the focus from the vertical, which is where it's supposed to be, to the horizontal. And you're behaving like a mere human being. And you're not. You're a supernaturally indwelt child of the living God. And that changes everything. Just being reminded of our identity. I mean, Paul does this again to the church at Philippi, right? He says, look, consider chapter 2. Consider one another as more important than yourselves. And then what does he have to bring in as an illustration to motivate us to do that? Christmas. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus, humbling himself for us and reminding us that, listen, Jesus laid down his life for you. You ought to lay down your preferences for one another. So humility is the first thing that the effect of God's presence should produce. We should be overwhelmed that God would save us, that he would treat us with such kindness that we are his the object of his delight, that we are those who have been called into fellowship with him, that we are his fellow workers, that we are his field, that we are his building. And when we are focused there, 
we are in a good place to love his church and love his people out of the humility that that should produce. So that's the first effect. The second effect is purity. Again, in 1 Corinthians, if you're in 1 Corinthians 3, just look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and notice verses 19 and 20, where Paul again to the same church applies this temple idea. And he says to them, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, Paul can't get away from this idea that we are the temple of God, that God dwells within us, and that because God dwells within us, that means he purchased us. He bought us. We don't get to have a say anymore. When Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and claims us and seals us as God's own, we relinquish our rights to be Lord of our life anymore. In fact, that's what it takes for the Holy Spirit to come into your life to begin with, is the humility produced by the Spirit to humble yourself, to cry out, I am needy, God, I need you. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please save me, God. And when God saves a person, he puts a spirit within a person, and therefore that spirit takes ownership of him, and the spirit begins to control him. And so Paul tells the church at Corinth here, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God your body. Now, what's the sin he's specifically addressing here? He's specifically addressing the sin of sexual immorality in the church. Notice what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's, for it's written that you will become one flesh, but he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he says, do you not know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? So this, it's unthinkable that a Christian would give themselves over to impurity as a lifestyle and sell themselves out, in this case, to temple prostitution. Because our bodies are to be marked by purity because they are the residents of God, the Holy Spirit. We also see this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. One more verse on this. 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the same church. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 They hadn't quite listened to his first appeal. And so in verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. That's us, church. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Now, this is key. Separate spiritually, not separate spatially. You're not to avoid interacting with people who are not part of the people of God. We're going to see that in a minute. That's part of our mission. Okay? But separate spiritually. Don't join in their idolatrous lifestyles. 
and touch no unclean thing, then I'll welcome you. Verse 18, I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, so the temple of God idea that we are God's temple should lead us to fight our sin, to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to pursue God himself, and to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. C.S. Lewis, in his own inimitable way, rightly diagnoses the tragedy of idolatry. I want to read you this quote from C.S. Lewis. He talks about how unthinkable it is when Christians would give themselves over to idolatry and what a tragedy that is. He says, quote, the woman who makes the dog, and he's, talk, he's going to talk about all different things we can have a tendency to make an idol of. He says, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It's a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman, glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life it is sometimes feasible, that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens. So he uses three analogies here, right? The woman who's obsessed with her dog, the man who's obsessed with alcohol, and the man who's obsessed with a woman. He says, of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or partial good To a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. Apparently, the world is made that way. Then listen to this. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. And that's that's Lewis, man. He's gold on stuff like this. Just gold. And so what Lewis says here is that until we give God the center, the proper place, until he's the sun in the solar system of our lives, all the other planets won't operate as they should. The, the, the orbit won't work. See, we've got to put first things first. We've got to keep God central. And that doesn't mean that nothing's gonna, nothing bad's going to happen to you. Good grief, we're going to see that in just a minute. But it does mean that you are positioned then to enjoy and navigate life both its pleasures and its pain in a way that will lead to your spiritual flourishing and not your death. Because you, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have first things first. I mean, C.S. Lewis said it again in his own inimitable way. He said, when we, when we treasure earth above heaven, we lose both. But when we treasure heaven above earth, we get earth thrown in. And that's, C.S. Lewis comes back to that again and again, this whole first things first. And then second things retain their second place status. But instead of, if we take a second thing like a dog or alcohol or a relationship or even the church and place it as a first thing, we're ruined. We're ruined because God has left his central centering, uh, all-consuming influence in our lives as, as the one thing most needed, the one thing. 
why David prayed in Psalm 27, 4, you know, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. See, that's the first thing. That's the first thing attitude. Paul said, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For him, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God is on the basis of faith. That was Paul's passion. It says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus said, I made my food the will of my Father. That's first things first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? All these things will be added to you. See? You're in the proper frame to receive it. But when the thing becomes the main thing, it becomes a bad thing. I think Pastor Jonathan has said, probably quoting some other people frequently, it's when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. And that's true. So that's the effect, all right? So we've seen the location of God's presence, the effect of God's presence, making us humble and pure. And now finally and quickly, we come to the display of God's presence. How does the, the, does God display himself through us? So once we've encountered him and Jesus and the church, and we, that's had a humbling and purifying effect on us, and it does in an ongoing way. That's not just a one-time thing. Like, yeah, I encountered God's presence once, and that made me humble and pure. And no, you didn't, because you're still talking that way. And me too, right? Because we, we ongoing and continual encounter with God's presence, making us progressively more humble and more pure. That's the idea of sanctification. So the display of God's presence, then I want to talk about in two ways. Weakness and witness. Weakness and witness. Now, I want you to just turn with me to a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians. You're already there, so we'll just hop around a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Notice this amazing, amazing picture. This is not stuff we like to hear because it's about suffering. We've got some suffering brothers and sisters in this room this morning, and I want them to leave here encouraged that God's presence is getting ready to be massively displayed in their life. This is not American Christianity, but it is biblical Christianity, and I'll take the Bible. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 4-7. This isn't a health-wealth gospel you're getting ready to hear. This is the real gospel. 2 Corinthians 4-7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who are, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There's a picture. You want God's presence displayed through your life? Don't you want people to know God? Well, we gotta get weak. We gotta get broken. We gotta suffer. And that's how God's presence, it gets manifested in our lives. So what did this lead the Apostle Paul to do? It led him to not lose heart. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Let's look there. For we do not lose heart, even though all this is happening, even though 
We have a brother with stage four brain cancer, even though we have people facing horrendous sickness and, and difficulty relationally, problems in family and things like that, and, and just any number of sin struggles and weakness. Listen to this. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. And that's true for all of us. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know, chapter 5, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Notice our, our bodies, the temple of God. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, he says, if I die, that's okay. I give up this tent. I go take on a glorified body that's a temple that's never going to go away, that's never going to fade. He's t- picking up this tent and temple analogy and applying it to our earthly body and our heavenly body that we'll receive at the resurrection of Christ. Then verse 6, chapter 5, for we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And then finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the summary statement of Paul. He didn't get out of this either. He was the lead sufferer. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't exactly know what that is, but we had a thorn in the flesh that was given to him as a messenger of Satan to harass him and humble him. And he pleaded with the Lord, please take this away from me, God. Please take this away. I can't do it anymore. I can't serve you in this capacity. I need you to remove this. This will be for the advance of the gospel if you take this away. God didn't agree. God left it with him. And he struggled with that thorn in the flesh. And it was given to him to keep him humble, he said in verse 7 of chapter 12. Then in verse 8, he prays for the Lord to take it away. But what did God say to him? Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There it is. My power, my, 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 my presence is displayed in your weakness. So brothers and sisters, if you are jealous for the display of God in your life, which you should want, you should want God to display himself through you. Be willing to relinquish that, the, the terms of that display to God himself. Don't insist that he display himself in the way that you think he should display himself. Because that's what Paul was doing here. But he said, if God's going to display it in my weakness, this embarrassing, crippling thorn in the flesh that makes me feel ashamed, that makes me feel weak, what does he say? I'll boast all the more gladly then about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, that's what Paul wants more than anything is Christ's power on his life. And if you want the power of Christ on your life, say with Paul, verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. You know why? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that's Paul's perspective on the manifest presence of God displayed through our weakness. God's glory is revealed in his people as they remain faithful when life is at its hardest. And so we can get ready to see some God 
every time, I mean, there, there should be, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to glorify suffering here. Suffering is horrendous. It's terrible. It's awful. It's an enemy. We should hate it with all of our hearts. That cancer exists in the world should bother us. But suffering is not the final word. Suffering does not get the last laugh. God does. The resurrection proves it. And so when we encounter weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulty, we groan. It doesn't, we don't put on a happy face. We groan, we cry, we pray, we struggle. But then as the church, we gather, gather together, gather around each other, love each other, serve each other, pray for each other, and watch the display of God through that. Through that weakness. G.K. Beale says, today we neglect the critical role of suffering that is necessary for spiritual growth. God often uses suffering to humble us so that the life of Christ might flow through us and grow his dwelling place in our midst. While the importance of the word of God is recognized by many church growth studies, the notion of the expansion of the temple church through suffering is often neglected. Read that in a church growth book. I've yet to read it. I read a lot of stuff on how the church grows. I should. I'm a pastor. I'm concerned about that. But I'm waiting for the chapter on suffering. You know why? Because press doesn't like, Christian presses don't like to release that stuff. It doesn't sell books. But the Bible says that suffering builds the church. And so I say, let it come. God's our Father. He knows what He's doing. He's not a killjoy. He graces us with love and grace and mercy. But every now and then, He has to discipline us for our good. And that comes through suffering. Let's trust our Father. Let's trust our Father. And finally, and I'm not going to turn us there because I'm out of time. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5-12 through 12 talks about the witness of the church as a display of God's presence. If we don't open our mouths and talk about Jesus to people, God's presence will not be through us. That declaration, making known the marvelous works of the Lord, telling people what the Lord has done for you, is a way in which God's presence comes into another person's life. That's how you got saved. Somebody took words and spoke them to you, and you're like, I'm hearing from God right now. Don't you want to be that for somebody else? Don't you want to be that for somebody at 323? God is putting an opportunity on our doorsteps saying, I want to bring my presence to the city of Owensboro, Kentucky. Will you as the people of God show them me? Show them me. Get close to them so they can see me. It's an awesome privilege. We should embrace it. So that's, that's the witness aspect. Let me close with a final quote, and I want to go ahead and invite our music team forward. You guys come on up, and also those who are assisting with the offering, let me just say a word about that. Um, those of you who read the email are familiar with this, but if, in case you didn't, we're going to start passing offering uh, baskets, not because we're money hungry or we want to be that way, but because we want to make giving more a central aspect of our worship service as a response to God and his grace. We not only respond in song, but the way the Bible tells us that we should respond to God and his grace to us is by giving 
ourselves and our offerings and tithes to him. So that's why we're doing it. If you give in other ways, like me, if you give online or if you give like a check as you drop it in, that's still fine. Just pass the basket on by. No, no, no huge thing. Just take an opportunity to thank God for his provision to you and, 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 and thank him for, you know, the opportunity to give to him. So don't feel any pressure at all. And if you're a guest, please let it pass by. We want this service to be a gift to you. We're honored that you're here. We're thankful that you're here. Please don't feel any pressure from us whatsoever uh, to give in any way. So let me read this final quote, and then we will uh, we'll stand together and sing. This is, a great, this is a great reminder to us that don't you want to leave here and know God? Like, I, I, I just need to leave like, okay, so Mark, you've told me a lot this morning. You've told me God's presence is located in Jesus in the church. Okay, this brings humility and purity in me that I'm to be a witness and I'm, I'm, to, I'm to, you know, to, in my weakness, display God. I got a lot of work to do and me too. I got a long way to go and me too. So where do we go? G.K. Beale reminds us that we get it from being with Jesus. So here's your takeaway. Spend time with Christ. Spend time time with Christ. What did Acts 4.13 say? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were amazed because they perceived that they were ordinary men who had been with Jesus. See, being with Jesus is where we get the presence of God. What people need from you the most, what people need from me the most is my transformed presence. And the way I get a transformed presence is to be in the presence of a transforming person. 2 Corinthians 3.18, For we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the other. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you want to be changed? You got to gaze on him. You got to be with him. You got to behold him. Listen to what Beale says. In the busyness of our modern lives, we spend little time with Jesus and wonder why we have so little power. We wonder why the church lacks power to heal broken marriages, lives wrecked by depression and alcoholism, and hearts addicted to pornography. Our lives are frantic, busy, and powerless because we don't take time to stand before the Lord of the earth. As we stand beholding the glory of the Lord, then we who are in the temple are being transformed into the same degree of glory from one degree of glory to another. This happens in the context of worship in the temple. Powerful witness comes from ongoing and sustained time in the presence of God as we spend time beholding him in his glory and then the power of our witness grows exponentially. Don't you want that? That's what I want. Let's stand together and let's sing in response to God and his grace toward us.